morning again, everybody. So, hooray! Hooray, hooray, hooray! Well done, we have done it. We have done it. Phil, it's you and me. We're more enthusiastic than them. <laughs> Thank you so much for bearing with us with this book. Thank you for engaging with it. Thank you for wrestling with the subjects. Thank you for giving us the best reward ever, which is when you come and say, that's made me go back to the Bible, because that's all we ever want to hear. So thank you for that, because it's been fun. And we've addressed many, many challenging issues, hopefully helping us to develop as a healthy church together, talking about and thinking about those things that can threaten and disrupt the church life, healthy life within a church, and hinder our discipleship. So here's some of the things that we've uh, talked about. Divisions, factions within the church, a false gospel, sexual immorality, that was several weeks worth, marriage, singleness, women in hats, women in the church, spiritual gifts, arrogance and greed, the conduct of the Lord's Supper, and how to love well. Well, they were the ones I could remember. So well done. And so today we are finishing our series, not with the last chapter, but with a grand finale. Because Paul knows that in the midst of all these issues, they are in danger of forgetting the main thing. If your church was built around just studying some of those chapters in 1 Corinthians that we have done, if that was all you had of scriptures, you might have somewhat of a distorted church. I kind of hope you would have, because otherwise it would be a bit worrying. And Paul brings them back to the main thing. He tells them that they are in danger of forgetting their roots, and so he gives them some snapshots of the gospel. And so that's what we're going to be looking at in, those, in the first few verses. We are going to be doing the whole chapter. There are 58 verses. So if I take a minute a verse, you won't mind, will you? Because that's not really long. <laughs> so here we are, back to the main thing, the gospel. Verse 3, Christ died for our sins. By the way, if you want to say amen or hallelujah at any point, feel free. I know it's not very us, but I think it kind of deserves it. All right. So Christ died for our sins. Amen. Not bad. He was buried. You can hold, hold on that one. All right. And he was raised on the third day. Okay, we'll need to do that again. And he was raised on the third day. Excellent. See, actually what Paul says is he says, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised again on the third day according to the scriptures. This is not some accident. It's not some kind of God moment of going, oh, best raise him from the dead now he's dead. He has planned it from the beginning of time, from the moment that Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. God has been planning for this moment when his son, the perfect sacrifice, God totally, man totally, would be nailed to a cross and die for our sins. And everything in scripture points to that place, that time in history, that he would be buried 
It wouldn't be a momentary thing. Or was he really dead? Oh, I don't know. He would be buried for three days. And after the third day, he would be raised again, according to the scriptures. This is a world-transforming narrative. It is a world-changing story that we are talking about this morning. And then Paul says he appeared to Peter and the twelve, to his closest friends, to those who knew him and loved him most. And then he appeared to more than 500 at one time. Now, if you think that maybe the twelve were hallucinating, or it's just some kind of wishful thinking because they really, really wanted Jesus back again, he's just saying, well, even if you believe that, then he appeared to these 500 people, some of whom didn't even know him at one time. And by the way, most of them are still alive, so go and ask them. Go and check it out. Then he appeared to James. James, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, Jesus' own brother. And then Paul says, he appeared to me on the road to Damascus in a different way. This is our story. This is our gospel. This is what we believe. This is the main thing. And everything else, kind of distractions, I suppose. So we are talking, in case you haven't worked it out yet, about resurrection this morning. And it's not Easter, so it's especially fun. So what did that word resurrection mean to Paul and his hearers? Because that's quite important, really. It didn't just mean life after death. Nor was it a general, belief, a general term for any belief of what would happen to people after they had died. Actually... It meant that people already dead would be given new bodies and would return to an embodied life not completely unlike the one they had before. This is kind of the main thing, all right? It meant that people already dead would be given new bodies. Now, that's worth an amen, isn't it? And would return to an embodied life, so not just like kind of floaty spirits all over the place, an embodied life, not completely unlike the one they had before. All right, we're going to look at that a bit. That belief had been popular in Judaism for around two to three centuries already, but had been denied by most of the pagan world and some of the Jewish groups, for example, the Sadducees. Fill in your own joke at that point. Well, they did better at that at the 9.15. <laughs> Somebody else can tell you. No, they can. But the Corinthians were starting to say, there is no resurrection of the dead. There is no resurrection of the dead. Amongst all the other issues they had in Corinth, some of them were starting to say, oh, there isn't any resurrection of the dead. They were saying it because it made no sense within their surrounding worldview. There was no room for resurrection within the culture that they'd grown up in. Does that feel familiar? I believe in a man who was raised from the dead. Really? Are you mad? It was starting to permeate into their own thinking that there couldn't possibly be resurrection from the dead. Paul wants them to see that the Christian worldview is different. It's a worldview that has power at a personal level, but it also has rigor at an intellectual level. And many of the Easter's that have preceded 
we have tried to say that and work it through, that this is not something that's just, well, I believe it, it's a fairy story, but something that has historical and intellectual rigor that you truly can believe in with confidence and not be ashamed of. Paul is trying to get them to understand that the resurrection of Jesus changes their lives personally. It transforms them. It's an experience, but it's also something with intellectual rigor, enough to take on the pagan world around them and win. The resurrection is the foundation of our Christian counterculture. We must believe it. We must believe it. It is not optional. We must believe in the resurrection. So Paul takes on their own objection. He says in verse 13, if that's the case, then not even Christ has been raised. You know, you can't have one without the other. If you want to say there's no resurrection, then even Jesus has not been raised from the dead. And frankly, you might as well go do something more useful with your life. But he uses that term Christ because he wants them to see it's the Messiah, the anointed one, the Lord. And the only reason we call him Christ is because he was raised from the dead. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is in vain. Maybe it is anyway. (laughs) And so is your faith. What are we doing this for? It's just empty, pointless. He says we would have been false witnesses saying something was true when actually we knew that it wasn't to a futile faith, empty, void, pointless, meaningless. Oh, and by the way, you are still in your sins because if Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead, then he can't forgive you and give you a new life and a new start. So it's all looking a bit bleak, isn't it, really? And those people who've died, who you think have gone to be with Jesus, well, they haven't actually because he wasn't raised from the dead, so that can't happen. He says, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all people. Is that something you want to sign up for? To be pitied more than anyone else? I was up at Settle Play Barn a number of years ago now, as I'm sure you'll realize, and uh, talking to a school mum, a friend of mine, and she'd had some really difficult times um, illness and death within the family, and we were talking about that. We knew each other quite well. And I was talking a little bit about what it feels to be a Christian and to face that kind of reality, like you do at Settle Playbun. <laughs> and after a while, she said to me, it must be nice to have faith. And I said to her, only if it's true. Only if it's true. Because it's not nice to have faith. That's like having a comfort blanket, It's only nice to have faith if it's true, otherwise I'm an idiot. And that's not nice, is it? Oh, and by the way, so are you, because you're here. Faith has to be based on truth, otherwise it's just pointless. It's just pointless. And here we go, verse 20. You will want your Bible in front of you, because I am going to read you the rest of it. Verse 20, he says this, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. Phew, well that's a relief, isn't it? And you kind of wonder whether it's a relief 
are actually more a sense of confidence. I'm dealing with your objection, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, so we don't really need to be having this conversation. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. For each in his own turn, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it's clear that this does not include God himself. He put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. He doesn't get any less wordy, does he? But here we have, because Christ has been raised from the dead, pointers for hope. A message for a church in times of persecution that this is worth it. Christ, the first fruits of all who have, been, who have fallen asleep, died. Echoes in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 18. Because he has been raised from the dead, so will we be. Because we have seen him, we also can have confidence in that. Sin came into the world through Adam Death follows sin. Death is the consequence of sin. Life came into the world through Jesus Christ. Because we believe and trust in him, we can have life now and forever. The resurrection is a sign of the coming hope that is to come. When the last enemy will be destroyed. Let's not pretend that death is not an enemy. Death is an enemy Death is not as God made this world to be. Death is the final enemy. But the final enemy will be destroyed. Will be destroyed. We will all submit to death at a human level. But ultimately it is destroyed because of Christ. And everything will be subject to God's rule. Everything, Paul says, will be put back in its right order again. Every power and authority and dominion will be subject to Christ. And Christ will be subject to God. Everything will be in its right order. And then we go back to this Corinthian objection again. I thought he'd done that, but then he does it again. I would have put it all in the same paragraph myself, but Paul doesn't do that. He says, if there's no resurrection from the dead, if there's no resurrection from the dead, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? I love this. You just think that you're getting to an easy bit, and then it talks about baptism for the dead. We don't do that in this church, just in case you were wondering. Apparently, there's about 30 or 40 different interpretations. Generally, that's a good sign for saying that no one really knows. Maybe some people were being baptized for believers who had already died, who had died very rapidly after they'd come to Christ. And so somebody said, oh, I'll get baptized on their behalf because they haven't been baptized. That's one view. Maybe they were being baptized for people who died outside of Christ. That doesn't seem quite right, does it? Maybe it was those who, having 
seen how Christians had died and the hope and faith they had in life beyond death came immediately to be baptized in the light of what they'd seen, in the light of the testimony of those who had died. Actually, we have no idea, so we're moving quickly on. Paul says, if there's no resurrection, why am I endangering myself every day? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptizing? As, as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I die every day. I mean that, brothers, just as surely as I glory over you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus for merely human reasons, what have I gained? What's the point? Images from the Colosseum in Rome or the amphitheaters in Ephesus where the crowds gathered and the gladiators and there were cages with wild animals in that were around the arena and the Christians were there in the center and they opened the cages and the wild animals came out into the arena. Paul gives that picture. Why would I subject myself to something like that hour upon hour? Maybe he's using it metaphorically for those who have opposed the gospel of Christ why would I do that if this is not true? Why do we have brothers and sisters in lots and lots of countries across the globe today whose lives are threatened, who are subject to torture, even to death, because they will not renounce the name of Jesus? Why would you do that if it wasn't true? If you didn't have confidence in the resurrection of Christ and your own resurrected life beyond the grave. Paul says, we might as well live for today. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. It doesn't matter, does it? matter what you do. It's what lots of people live by today because they don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then at the end of this bit, he says, do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good Character, that's from the Greek poet Menander. I know you knew that already, but I thought I'd just remind you. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning, for there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. He's saying, come on. Don't be influenced by the culture around you. Don't let the views of those around you form your thinking and your believing and your doing. Don't do that. Live for Christ. Think again. He reminds them that they are called to be thermostats, not thermometers. That they are called to set the cultural temperature, not just respond to it and be transformed up and down by it. So then he moves on. Are you still with me? The last half. <laughs> That's right, it's not half of my notes, by the way. And it's a key question. He says, but somebody may ask may ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? Well, it's interesting, that, isn't it? Have you ever thought about that? Do you ever think about it? How am I going to be raised? What kind of body am I going to have? Is it going to be better than the one I've got at the moment? Can I choose? <laughs> will that be like a fashion parade? I'll have that one. <laughs> There's a certain kind of mystery Maybe it's a good thing, that's. But Paul tries to help them to grasp something of it. So read with me from verse uh, 36. 
How foolish, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. All flesh is not the same. People have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds another, and fish another. There are also heavenly bodies, and there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind, and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another, and star differs from star in splendor. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable, it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. So he takes these images from nature and talks about seeds and says you take the seed And it kind of dies in the earth. It doesn't actually die. It looks like it dies into the earth. And then it grows into something that doesn't look like the seed, but is of the same essence as the seed. And then he says different things have different natures, whether they're people or animals or fish or birds, the sun or the moon or stars or different stars from each other. They have different natures, different bodies. And he talks about heavenly bodies and earthly bodies that God in that moment will complete what he has begun. He will reverse and undo all of the negative, sinful effects on creation that we have seen until this point. And he focuses on the contrast. He says that we are sown perishable. We know that, don't we? We decay, we die, we turn to dust. It's the natural order of things. Sorry, it just is. (laughs) Bits fall off, stop working quite so well. That's how we are, perishable. But we will be raised imperishable. Never decaying. Never dying, not turning to dust. Imperishable. It almost find that impossible to get our heads around because it's the opposite of what we experience now. He says that we are sown in dishonor or shame. We are decaying, we are corrupted, we are fragile and frail. It's not how God made things in the beginning. But we will be raised in glory or in honor. There will be nothing to be ashamed of. You know, even when they question supermodels, There's always some part of their body they don't like. On that day, there will be nothing to be ashamed of. Which is a wonderful thing, isn't it? Because most of us carry a degree of shame with us about who we are, about what we look like. On that day, there will be no more shame, but we will be raised in honor and with glory. We are sown in weakness, but we will be raised in power we, will, we are sown a natural body, but raised a spiritual body. There is a difference, but there is a sameness. There is a continuity between who we are and who we will be. That's what resurrection is. And then verse 49 just leaves you saying, wow, really, doesn't it? Just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, so shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven. Now, that doesn't mean that we'll all have beards, long hair and sandals, okay? 
Doesn't mean we'll all look like Jesus wandering around. This is the spiritual body bit. We will bear the likeness, the spiritual likeness, the perfect beauty of Jesus. Now when you see glimmers of that, sometimes in yourself, often in others, to be like that all of the time, be amazing, won't it? It'll be amazing. For, for me to be like that all the time will be amazing. But then to live in a community where everybody is like that all of the time. The best, most beautiful, most holy, most attractive, most glorious community ever imagined. Paul goes on. I declare to you, brothers, verse 50, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the, per the imperishable. This is the verse I give to the new parents. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. <laughs> in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You're getting quite good at this. <laughs> you know, this was the verse that jumped out to me probably more than anything else in this whole passage. Everyone must be changed. Everyone will be changed. It doesn't matter whether we have died or whether we are still alive at his second coming, at his return. We all will be changed because we are all perishable. We are all mortal and the flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven. The perishable cannot inherit the imperishable. We are made of the wrong stuff. And at the point of his return, we will all be changed, transformed, metamorphosized into that spiritual body that allows us to exist in the presence of Jesus forever. We will all be changed. And so here's the conclusion. Death has been defeated. That was overwhelming. Death has been defeated. We will all die. For some, that will be an easier process than for others. For some that we watch, it is an easier experience than for others. We are living in a fallen world. And we are still subject to that. But death has been defeated. The sting of death has been drawn. And just like if you, took, if you take the sting out of a bee, the bee can no longer harm you. So that is the image that Paul wants us to go away with. That the sting of death has been drawn. Jesus took the sting of death. And whilst we will die, death has no power any longer over us because we will be raised again 
to a new and better experience of life than ever we have known. We often say this, that doing funerals for those who trust Jesus is a really different reality than when we're not sure. And we can only ever say we're not sure because there is hope in knowing that the sting of death has been taken by Jesus and that we are free from that. We have victory over the last enemy in Christ's resurrection. It is our ultimate hope. It is the foundation that we build our faith on, that we have victory over that last enemy. And the last verse of this chapter seems a bit odd, as if maybe it should be somewhere else, because he says, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. This is not just a truth about a future hope. This is a truth with present significance that impacts all we do and all we are. Paul has referred to the resurrection of Jesus a number of times as he's talked about moral and ethical issues. This is about who we are now, knowing what is to come and what has gone before. All of us will be very aware of the brutal murder of the Catholic priest, Father Jacques Hamel, this last week in Rouen. He isn't dead. He is more alive than ever. It doesn't take away from the brutality of the murder, but he has lived his life serving Jesus Christ. He was conducting Mass. And death's sting has been drawn for him as much as for anyone else, this is not the end. And for all of our brothers and sisters in Syria, in Kenya, in North Korea, in South Sudan, in Saudi Arabia, in Iraq, in Afghanistan, in Pakistan, in India, in Somalia, whose lives every day are under threat. This is not just a future hope. It is a present reality that the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is the foundation. It is the main thing. And it is the hope that we have that beyond this life, there is hope forever and ever and ever in the presence of Jesus. So if ever there's been a moment, a glimmer in worship, walking around in the countryside in your conversation with a friend, an experience of love, of forgiveness, of grace, of joy, of hope, of peace. Heaven will be like that forever, entirely, all of the time. It's worth it, isn't it? It's worth it.